Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, June 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Attorney General's Office and Department of Mental Health have reached a tentative settlement on a 2010 lawsuit. But will it improve the lack of community-based services in the state? I hope with the release of this report that came out related to that, that maybe we can all work together to make that happen without a lawsuit. That would be the best way. The governor and state treasurer are working to improve the state's weakened credit ratings. And find out how a state testing debacle has Mississippi education leaders investigating just how many students are affected. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi Attorney General's Office has reached a tentative settlement in a 2010 lawsuit over the lack of community-based mental health services in the state. The lawsuit brought by the Southern Poverty Law Center accused the Mississippi Department of Mental Health of relying too much on institutionalizing youth. The lawsuit was supposed to be a class action case, but all but one of the plaintiffs are now adults over age 21. The action comes on the heels of the release of a 2014 report on state spending for institutional care. Joy Hogue is executive director of Families as Allies. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier how the case got started. And it was originally an attempt to um, create a class action case on behalf of all similar, similarly situated children with serious emotional um, disturbances, but never got classified that way. So it was really about the individual children in that suit. And from what I understand, only one child is left in the suit. And I'm assuming that's, um, and they were trying to get the individual services and supports that that child needed. So I'm assuming that that has happened for that child. And so that's always good when a child gets the services that they need. Um, Although it doesn't address the broader issues with our system. What is the broader issue with the system? Just the whole idea of that we don't have enough home and community-based services um, for children to be able to do the things that all children should be able to do and want to do as far as being able to live with their families and go to school and be in their neighborhoods and also get the services and supports they need if they have a disability related to mental health. How do you feel about it taking this long to reach a settlement because the case was brought back in 2010, here we are 2017? And that is very discouraging, and I wish that way back in 2010 it would have been certified as a class action suit and that we would have been able to get those services and supports in our system for all children who need them. Um, I hope with the release of this report that came out related to that, that maybe we can all work together to make that happen without a lawsuit. That would be the best way, but it is disheartening how long it is, how long this has been going on. And that study does uh, talk about the need for community and home-based services in the state. Yes, it absolutely does. That's its primary focus and how to bring that about in all the um, 
systems and organizations that need to work together to make that happen and that it needs to be driven by what families and the children receiving services say is important to them. Do you know why it took so long for the report to be released, the study? I don't know. And now that I've read it, I am really, really perplexed about that because the recommendations in it are very good. And if we would have had it, you know, two and a half years ago, we could have been working on it all this time. And I didn't see anything in it that would explain why it was so important to not make it public. I'm very perplexed by that. And this is something I didn't ask you before, but what recommendations do you like the most or stand out the most? I think um, what really stands out to me is the ones about bringing the infrastructure together and making sure everybody is at the table. Because if we don't do that and if we don't put the processes and procedures in place so that we can all work together and blend funds and work on policies that will help all children, none of the other recommendations are going to work. So that's what really stood out to me. And also um, that it talked about how important it is for this to be led by families and that families have not felt listened to or responded to in the system. I mean, that's incredibly true, and that's so important. And then it's kind of ironic that families have been asking for this report for two and a half years, and that was one of the things in the report. And when you say infrastructure, for a layperson, what are you referring to? Um, Sometimes people think that mental health is just, as far as services for children, is just about the Department of Mental Health, but it's not. Obviously, they're key, and they need to be a leader in all this. But every single system that serves children, like education, health, Medicaid, um, juvenile justice, child welfare, touches on children's mental health and has ways that they can help children who have mental health challenges. So all of those organizations and state agencies need to be at the table and coordinate what they're doing in partnership with families and listening to what families say is really important so that we're not duplicating services and so that we can look at funding that's available for the different needs that children children have and then any policy barriers that might exist among agencies so that children can just simply get the help they need and not come up against a lot of brick walls and red tape. Well, Joy Hogue with Families as Allies, thank you so much for your insight in speaking with us. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for your interest in this. I'm I'm excited. Adam Moore is the Director of Communications for the Department of Mental Health. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they're pleased by the prospect of a resolution. Well, this um, lawsuit was filed several uh, years ago, I know, I believe in 2010, so it's been quite a while, but we're, we're pleased that it was able to come to a, a resolution and uh, pleased that uh, it's a, a settlement that's acceptable to all the parties involved. Almost simultaneously, we have the release of a report, a study that looked at how the mental health department was responding to children's mental health needs and the need for more community and home-based services. That study uh, said that there's too much institutionalized care. How is that going with the Department of Mental Health? There must be some things in place that are addressing this. For a number of years, we've been building up the services in the community, and that's what we've we've said all along, um, you know, with regards to, to some of those uh, findings by the Department of Justice, that we want to be able to build up services in the community and able to successfully transition people 
from inpatient care to the community. We want to make sure that there are services there in place for people to utilize and to utilize successfully. Um, you know, that, that's vital that they're in the community there, uh, and we want to be able to provide those, but they have to be built up, um, you know, first. It, it, there wasn't as much of a focus on that in the past, but for several years now that's uh, been moving forward. Why was hospitalization the way to go? Uh, we began to to look at at expanding community-based services a number of years before that, kind of guided by a strategic planning process that was put in place around 2008, I believe. So that process to help build those up was in place before that study began, and it's just been kind of continuing since then. Now that you're in the midst of having to make some changes and and layoffs, how is that going to impact these services? Well, a lot of the changes and some of those reductions in force that we've talked about are at our inpatient programs at the Department of Mental Health. And one of the ways that we're absorbing those is by transitioning some services to community providers. So we are able to provide some some of those resources to community providers to make sure that those services are are still in place. Um, So while there has been a decrease in beds at our uh, inpatient programs, we've been able to move some more resources to the community. And among some families, there is concern that they're left out of decision-making and being able to be heard. What is being done to address that, to bring them into the process more? Well, we try to work closely with uh, families and advocates whenever we can. We One thing that we've done um, just this year is um, develop through uh, some of our partners in the community a uh, family support caregiver program, which is uh, part of the Certified Peer Support Specialist uh, program that takes people and families of people who have uh, mental illnesses or disabilities and um, they get some training and they can get certified through the Department of Mental Health to be able to provide support with the uh, mental health care providers there in the community so they can work with them and be advocates for families, for the people who need services, and to help the providers understand the needs, the individual needs of the people they're working with. Is it cheaper to operate these services in the communities rather than in institutions? Well, that, that probably varies on, on the needs of all the people that are, that are being served. Um, every person is going to be different, and every person's needs are, are going to require a different level of, of attention and um, uh, services. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Adam. You're welcome. Thank you. The State Department of Mental Health is in the midst of layoffs due to budget cuts. In other news, the National Weather Service has issued a tropical storm warning for parts of the Gulf Coast. Forecasters are calling for large amounts of rain and flash flooding to hit the state over the next few days. The Hancock County Emergency Management Agency is advising all Hancock Hancock County residents living in areas that are prone to flooding to start making preparations to move everything out of their yards to a safe location and to move vehicles to a safe location. Coastal residents have a potential for tide levels at two to four feet above normal. All state residents should monitor the weather and take precautionary actions as necessary. Coming up, state leaders are being proactive in tackling debt and saving taxpayer dollars. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
State leaders are working to improve the credit ratings for Mississippi. The Bond Commission is refunding and restructuring more than $400 million in outstanding state bonds to manage state debt. State Treasurer Lynn Fitch says recent changes will amount to a savings of millions in debt payments. That includes saving $32 million in the next fiscal year. Republican Fitch and Governor Phil Bryant recently traveled to New York for annual meetings with analysts from the three top credit rating agencies. Treasurer Fitch tells us how the move benefits taxpayers. It's so important that we meet with the credit rating agencies every year, Standard Four and Moody's and Fitch. And this is the credit rating for our state. So this determines um, the interest cost, our borrowing capacity, purchases for our bonds, so that we have a good rating. We've historically had double A in all of those, which is significantly uh, important as we go to the market. It's very good. Recently, had two negative outlooks from Standard and Four and with Moody's. Um, but we had great meetings this week. Governor, I visited with all three rating agencies, had the opportunity to talk about restructuring, positive uh, controls that were being put in place uh, in regard to the financial aspect for our state. And it was very, very good and very positive for our state to have those meetings. Will the restructuring get those two credit agencies to boost our score back up? I think so, because what it did, it showed that we went to market. We had nearly $450 million outstanding state bonds. And so what we did is we restructured. And when we did that, that allowed us to capture $34 million in state. Um, that shows being very good stewards of our dollars, also being very progressive in the sense that we are trying to be sensitive to the market and that we know when to be proactive and check our bonds and have them um, restructured and refunded. Will that savings or that restructuring reflect directly on taxpayers? Will taxpayers save money from this? Absolutely. And here's how that helps. By that savings, that means that we don't have to receive an, an additional appropriation to pay um, for our debt service. And so let me talk about debt service for a moment. First of all, our, our total bond indebtedness is about $4.3 billion, And debt service runs around $480 million, you know, depending on an annual basis. That's basically what we're paying on our credit card. Debt service is the third largest item in our state budget. So just think about that for a minute. That's the third largest item. So going into um, this next year, FYI, we were already going to be expecting a shortfall of $21 million. So by restructuring and capturing the $34 million, now we won't have to get a, a deficit appropriation. We will have covered this shortfall for debt service. So that directly affects our taxpayers because that's not additional money that have to come out of the general fund. Tell us about the Governor's Fortify Act and how that will complement the restructuring efforts. So, you know, we've been trying to be very diligent about putting in financial controls and speaking to any uh, issues that we might need to really strengthen. Some of those, the Fortify Act, very good. I commend the governor for leading the charge. Uh, it allowed um, different components to be put in place, uh, not carrying over deficit budgets. Uh, whatever money is in the current fiscal year, it stays in that fiscal year. You don't get to count it, again, for the upcoming fiscal year which is very important, and then it's divided into certain categories so that will go into the rainy day fund, and there's a new cap on the rainy day fund of 10%, allows us to put more dollars in there, and allows it, the government accessibility to utilize those rainy day funds if the need arises. So we're excited because that's very good. The rating agencies like that strength factor. They like to see us put in stronger rules. We just recently did that with the State Bond Commission rules and regulations as well. 
And what we did there is we knew that coming forward, we needed to really look at the projects that were coming out from the, the state legislature on what they were approving for bond projects. So we adopted rules and regulations, which now strengthen how we vet those projects. In other words, now we're going to look at each one of those projects. We're going to determine, is this a potential project that affects the entire state, or is it just limited to one area of the state? So we need to look at the whole state's economic benefit interest. Second, does this asset last as long as the bonds? And normally the bonds are for 20 years. So you want to be sure that those go hand in hand. Also, it's still now take a hard look at, you know, the IRS rules and make sure that we're in best practices and that we're meeting the rules and regulations of the IRS. Uh, and we'll no longer pay for salaries or items that don't last very long. Uh, so we'll move completely away from that, as well as uh, recurring expenses. So these need to be for new, good, solid projects. And another very important item of those bond commission rules and regulations is that every project now has to look and see if there's another program that is a better fit. For instance, uh, if there's a project and they might could go to the Mississippi Development Bank or the Mississippi Business Finance Corporation or possibly go to um, MBA where there's a program already in place, we'd certainly want them to look there first before we come and put this on the, the general credit card for the taxpayer so it doesn't become a general obligation debt for all of the people involved. This way it would be very specific to those projects. So we feel very good and very um, excited that these new rules and regulations are in place. It sounds like this addresses immediate needs. As you said, the bonds last for 20 years. So is this restructuring a roadmap for what happens in the future? It absolutely is. So in other words, we shouldn't be getting projects that come to the State Bond Commission, which is the governor, myself, and the attorney general for our oversight. This should be very good, solid projects because that's what we need moving forward. The other step we've put in place is that Department of Finance and Administration will do quarterly reports on the timelines of these projects, how much has been spent, what is the uh, expectation in the sequence of as this project is progressing. I think that's going to be very beneficial, too, because that promotes another layer of accountability and fiscal responsibility. Lynn Fitch is Mississippi's treasurer. Treasurer Fitch, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Before the reorganization, two of the credit agencies had downgraded the state's credit rating from stable to negative. Coming up, the State Department of Education is working to correct a mishap surrounding a high school state test. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. State education officials are investigating how many students were affected by a U.S. history test scoring error. The mishap is raising questions about the graduation status of students statewide. The testing company, Pearson, says they scored more than 13,000 students' tests using the wrong scale. 951 of those students needed the test to graduate. The state board has voted to cancel the contract with Pearson. Officials are now pursuing an emergency contract with another test vendor Questar to pick up with upcoming tests. Paula Vanderford is chief of research and development with the State Department of Education. She says this mistake could affect school accountability. We've recently been notified by Pearson that they use the incorrect conversion table to score the assessment and it's the RSS table, the raw score to scale score table 
um, is what it's frequently referenced as. They use the incorrect table. By Pearson using the incorrect table, it gave some students a slightly higher score than they should have received, while it gave other students a slightly lower score than what they would have received. So this is an example only, because I'm not looking at the numbers. Raw scores range from zero to 60. The cut was set at a raw score of 25 when it should have been set at a raw score of 26. But students that were in the lower region received more points on the test than what they should have received. Then once they scored a scale score hypothetically above a 30, they received a lower score. The inverse happened at the higher end of the scale. At this point, we are trying to determine the impact that this has had statewide. That has yet to be determined. We know what is more likely, but we can't officially make a, a statement as to what has occurred until we have all the data. Because going back, we had 27,338 um, students total in the state that tested on the U.S. history exam, but we only received expedited files. And so um, no files have been released to the district other than the 951 seniors that were needed to graduate. So there's still policy decisions that have to be made about how we move forward to address this issue. Those have yet to be determined, and we don't want to make those policy decisions until we know and can confirm the impact. But as I shared with the board, in summary, it's more difficult to determine the impact strictly because it's not just the students that we're at the cut between the 25 and 26 because we have all these other options that a student can use to graduate in lieu of passing the test. Based on the um, deliverables of the contract, Pearson has until June the 23rd to provide us all of the data files associated with the U.S. history assessment. And that's at that point is when we have the individual score reports, the, the teacher reports, and so on and so forth. So um, we still have deliverables that have not been met. But this is an impact not only to the students um, for having given the incorrect score uh, because of the graduation, meeting the graduation requirements, but skill scores also play a role in the accountability system. So this could have an impact on schools and districts um, in their accountability ratings. That's why it's so important for us to identify the error, the impact that it's had, and ensure that a correction is made for the students and the district. The previous eras, in conjunction with current era, forced us to have to consider Pearson's pattern of poor performance and the impact that this has on the students, as well as the schools and districts. And um, frankly, the agency's lack of confidence that we have in Pearson to provide us with accurate data forced us to make the recommendations um, to the board to rescind the renewal of the year five contract that they approved in April of 2017 previously, and then to terminate the contract moving forward for years five through 10. And then um, to move forward with emergency procurement because we have um, the RFP process takes at least six months. Um, we have students that will have to assess in December and so the option that we had was an emergency contract. The proposal that we have from Questar is, that was approved by the board um, in executive session is $2.2 .2 Questar is the only vendor 
that we currently have a contract with that is capable to pick up and have an assessment ready. We're familiar with their platform, but more importantly, the students and the districts are familiar with the platform. So, so this is the most seamless transition um, for the students and the districts because they will not have to be introduced to another platform. The canceled Pearson contract would have obligated the state to work with the company for an additional six years. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. Listen tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi. Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.